for our final episode in Season 2 of Clout Asia. I am joined by Edwin Chu, a Sydney cider who has had a compelling career in the commercial real estate sector across Asia. Edwin started his career in financial services in the middle of the GFC. So in 2009, he decided he would put his career in asset management on hold and relocate to Shanghai to study Mandarin. Despite not fully mastering the language of his forefathers, Edwin's clout is his ability to stay relevant in a fast-moving market. He oversaw the development of Shanghai's iconic Xintiandi precinct and later managed a staggering $1.2 billion commercial real estate fund for Capital Land, one of Asia's largest real estate groups. Our conversation delves into Edwin's unique experiences navigating his Australian Chinese heritage in the context of Chinese culture, both in the workplace and inside vibrant KTV rooms. We talk about the evolving landscape for foreigners in China and the need to up their game to stay competitive in the workforce. We discuss the potential for impact and growth as an Asian Australian in the Australian landscape. And we unravel the captivating story of Hao Kwa, a figure often overlooked, and his significant role in connecting China to the world. Welcome to Clout Asia, where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability by choosing a food, song, show, and person that captures the essence of their experience to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Edwin Chu. Good evening, Edwin. Welcome to Cloud Asia. It's great to have you here. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I thought we might begin with you sharing a little bit about your journey heading into Shanghai. You are one of the few Australians I know who has been in Shanghai for about, what, 13, 14 years now? 14 years now. How did it all begin? It began with the financial crisis. I was working in the financial industry in Sydney as a researcher and a fund manager. Obviously, the financial crisis came and I thought it was a good opportunity to see see the outside world, for one. And then secondly, I also thought trade at the time between Australia and and China and Asia in general was booming. Mm -hmm. Being of Chinese heritage, but not having the language skills, not knowing how to speak Mandarin and not knowing how to read and write Chinese, I thought, okay, I need to leverage this skill. So that's what made me come to Shanghai to take on a language course. And what made you stay after your language course? I stayed because there was a lot more opportunities. At the time, 08, China was booming. The GDP growth was fantastic compared Mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. So I was presented with a lot more opportunities, not just in the quantity of opportunities, but in the quality of opportunities and the type of skills I could learn. And that's what made me stay for the last 13, 14 years. I was in China. I studied there in 2007 and I came back to Australia to finish my degree. I'm curious to know in 2008 and 2009, which is shortly before the expo, which was a huge event in Shanghai, what were the opportunities like there? What did you end up starting out doing in Shanghai? I started because my background is in finance and equities. At the time, there were a lot of foreign investors and foreign investment into China and a lot of interest in China from foreign companies. So I was presented with opportunities to leverage that English skill to contribute to Chinese firms and also investment firms at the time. 
So I think that's what got me in the door. But then obviously there's also cultural barriers being an ABC. While it opened opportunities, after a while, there's certain expectations and then you can't break those expectations being in a very cultural place like China, kind of <laughs> navigated and then found some opportunities that could utilize my skill. Why don't we kick off into your first nomination yep. before we head back into your story? What's your food nomination for us today? My food nomination is Shao Kao and Chuan Chuan. So that's just basically Chinese barbecue. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Always a, a crowd favorite. Coming from Australia, barbecue is uh, very ingrained in our Aussie culture. So I remember the good old days in Sydney. It was barbecues on the weekend with family, barbecues with friends. And I have a lot of friends from a diverse ethnic background. So my best friend in Sydney is actually Indian. So I remember going to yeah. his place on the weekends and then they would be having tandoori chicken barbecues. And then one weekend I could be at a Aussie friend's place and then we would be barbecuing steak. And then another weekend we'd, they'd come to my house and, and we'd be barbecuing. So I think this is very ingrained in, in Aussie culture. When I came to China and seeing that barbecue is also very ingrained in Chinese culture, I thought, wow, this is amazing, right? Drinking yeah. beer, having barbecue, that's very much a Chinese thing as it is an Australian thing. And I found that it's amazing. And then just a, a side story. So my wife is from northern China. She's from a town that borders North Korea. So I remember one time going back and visiting her family and they said, hey, let's have a barbecue as like a day out. So we were having barbecue, drinking beer on the China-North Korean border. And I was telling my friend, this is so surreal. From having barbecue at my place or at my best friend's place, I'm going, hey, I'm having barbecue at the North Korean-China border today. And then they, all my <laughs> friends in Australia were so fascinated. They, they kept asking me for photos and videos. And I thought, wow, how did I end up here? <laughs> there's something I have to say, there's certain types of foods and definitely Shao Kao is one of them that can really bring so many different cultures together and it's really I think it comes down to that cooking your own food I think hot pot is very similar as well people just understand it and get it and you don't need to speak the same language and be able to communicate at all but the act of cooking meat on fire and enjoying some kind of beverage along with it just <laughs> connects people. I think there must be something primal about it, right? Because at the end of the day, we're all humans. We're all the same lineage, right? It's just through human evolution, we evolved in different places and adapted to the environment of different places. But I think all of our ancestors got to where they were by putting meat over fire. So there's something that just connects everyone regardless of culture or regardless exactly. of race. <laughs> I absolutely agree. You don't spend 13 or 14 years in China without probably being asked this question, which is your song of choice when you sing karaoke. Do you have a music nomination for us today? This is going to come as a shock to a lot of people. So when I go to karaoke, being a Chinese-Australian, they expect me to sing either a Cantonese song because I'm born in Hong Kong or some Mandarin song. But to the shock of everyone in the karaoke room, because I, I, I don't usually listen to Asian music, not even just Canto pop. I don't listen to Japanese music. I don't listen to Korean music. 
So when I pick a song, it's R&B and hip hop. So it's California Love <laughs> by Tupac. And then when I start seeing that, there's the confused look at every KTV I go to. It never gets old. I love that song. I think it's a great song and we're going to have a listen to it. curious to know at karaoke do they even have this song available not at every karaoke only the expensive karaoke that has an extensive library of western songs do they have the songs <laughs> available <laughs> it's an interesting point that you make and from this kind of story i think often there's an expectation whether it's intentional or unintentional that because you look a certain way or you're from a certain country that you should behave in a certain way or you should enjoy certain things. This is one example of the expectation that you should at least know one J. Chow song. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. We all learn one. How have you navigated that being Australian Chinese or Chinese Australian in Shanghai this many years? I don't know if you've ever had instances where you needed to prove your Australianness or prove your Chineseness. That's a very interesting question. When I was younger, when I first came here, I tried to go out of my way to say I'm more Australian than I am Chinese. But then after a while, I realized I am who I am and I should just be who I am. If I am Australian and I am Chinese by heritage, And I was brought up a certain way with my parents being from Hong Kong. I also have the Hong Kong influence. At the end of the day, I'm unique, right? So if I try to be more Australian or more Chinese, then I stop becoming who I am. So I think initially when I go into like a certain role at work or even a KTV room, I just be who I am. I get a lot of confused looks and also a lot of questions. And then I just try to explain. Most people, once they understand my background and they understand my upbringing, they're like, oh, that makes sense. But initially, they're really shocked. (laughs) It's natural for people to want to put you in a box. It just makes it easier to, to understand. And from a work perspective, because you did say that your first role was with a Chinese company, a Chinese firm. Yes. And they, I guess, saw your skill sets that you could offer as being very Western, right? You you could speak English very well, you could write, and that's where they had put you in that box. Was that always the case? Has that always been the case for you in China? I think for that role, that specific role, they needed a native English speaker and a native English writer because... They needed to publish investment papers for their foreign clients. And they had trouble attack- attracting staff like me because no foreigner would actually work for that firm because it's such a local firm. I think I'm still the only one that has worked for them. I think for that specific role, yes. But then the roles subsequently were more based on my skills. And then I think where I would add value to, say, other local staff is that maybe I have seen more of the world and I bring more ideas that probably they may not have. So this was a credit to the role, I would say up to say around 2015, but China's become more localized since then. So mm. actually it's been more of a liability now than before, but whereas before it was more of an asset. That's an interesting thing that you mentioned. Back in 2008, 2010, 
us being native English speakers, our asset was really the native English skill set, right? Yep. Or a slightly more westernized approach to problem solving or doing business. Whereas as China has become more international and there's been such an increase in Chinese nationals heading overseas to do higher education, we're now competing with a cohort of Chinese professionals who speak English probably as good as us, if not better, because their grammar's probably a lot better than ours. Yes. How do you, and you've been through that whole cycle, how have you leveraged your skill sets in your area, which is real estate, in making you differentiated from others? Language is one thing, right? Language is easy to learn. As you said, there's a lot of local mainland Chinese that have gone abroad and studied and probably studied at Harvard and Cambridge, better universities than I have studied. And their English is probably, if not on par or even better than mine. So I think language is one part. And that was something that I personally leveraged earlier on. But as you said, as these returnees have come back to their own countries, I found where my skills and probably some other foreigners, where our skills lie, is that we have a broader view of the world and having that broader view of the world would bring different perspectives and ideas to the jobs that I was involved with. For example, I've had the luxury of working in premium grade offices in Sydney. My sister is in New York, so I would go visit grade A office buildings. So I would understand that what makes an office building grade A isn't necessarily the hardware. There's you know, the, the software, the front desk staff, the security guards, how they dress, the feel it gives you. So these are very intangible things that you can't really learn in a book, right? You really need to go and see it and experience it. And I found that, yes, while there are a lot of local mainland Chinese that have gone abroad to study, they don't have that broad experience. And that's Mm. the value we bring to some of these firms. But I think that's also changing because a lot of Chinese now have worked abroad. They don't just study abroad and come back. They have worked abroad. So I think this broadness, it's not as valuable as it used to be. But we try to update our skills and and stay competitive because the market has become more challenging. I I think that's a good point about your own career as an example. You've identified different ways to differentiate yourself and stay one step ahead um, in terms of the other competitors, right, in, yes. in the market. And, and perhaps now you need to think about other ways because more people are gaining global work experience. And that's something that definitely when I was in Shanghai, I definitely noticed a, a huge difference between how Australians view the world from a business and career perspective and the Chinese. Yeah. So uh, Australians, I think, We're so well-traveled and we're global in that sense. But in so many other ways at the business and corporate level and maybe investment as well, it's incredibly siloed and localized. And then I'm also thinking China's changed. The local population has a broader worldview than what I experienced when I first came to China. I'm thinking, is it now to take my broad worldview that I've learned in China, maybe it's now time to take that skill back to Australia because Australia, due to its geographical isolation, requires more people like us who have that Asia experience to benefit Australian companies. So I'm also trying to see if that's a way forward for myself if the China growth story is over, right? (laughs) I think that China growth story is 
pivoting as yeah. with everybody's growth story, but the time that you've spent in China and more broadly is, in my opinion, incredibly valuable, if not invaluable, to mm. people sitting in Australia. We're going to jump to your movie nomination. Yeah. You have picked a movie called Comrades, Almost a Love Story. Yes. Tell us what it's about and why you picked this movie for us. It's a Hong Kong movie set in the late 80s, early 90s. It's about two mainland Chinese. They go to Hong Kong in search of opportunity. And then in search of that opportunity, Hong Kong being what it was back in the 80s and 90s at its peak, they suffered discriminations, hardships, and also just trying to adapt to a new environment. I picked this movie because firstly, it's very entertaining. I would recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it to watch it. And secondly, I think it's just very interesting, the growth of mainland China. So if you think about in the late 80s and early 90s, even in my own story, when I used to travel back to Hong Kong, my relatives would tell me, don't go to Shenzhen, it's dangerous. Whereas now, yes. I, when I go to Shenzhen, I'm like, you don't need to go to Hong Kong. So I think it's just very interesting how in the span of 20, 30 years, Shenzhen or mainland China in general has gone from this backwater, underdeveloped place to what it is today. I can relate to it as well because the two main characters in the movie, you know, moved to a new city and then they had to adapt. And I think that was also in line with moving from Australia to Shanghai and adapting to local customs and culture. And then obviously struggling at first, but then making use of it and, and finding opportunities. I think that adaptability and especially that growth story yeah. is something that in all the guests who I've spoken to who have been to and from China the last 20 to 30 years have all reflected. I was in Shenzhen recently and my dad said to me, Shenzhen's about the same age as you, about 30 something years old. And there was nothing. It was a city constructed. And it's kind of incredible if you think about in Australia, our closest city that was constructed is probably Canberra. Canberra, And to see where Canberra is in the last 30 years, and to see where Shenzhen's come to in the last 30 years, it's just incredibly mind-blowing. I was recently in Shenzhen during the pandemic when we could still travel. Some of my colleagues told me you should go just a bit outside Shenzhen because there's a lot of beautiful beaches there. And then I spent a weekend there and it just reminded me of Bondi Beach, of Balmoral Beach. I was learning surfing, a very Australian thing in Shenzhen. I would never in my mind in the 90s or late 80s would I think, oh, I'm going to go to Shenzhen for a weekend to learn surfing and just chill out on the beach. So I think it's very interesting just watching these old movies and and seeing where China was and and where it is now. For our last nomination of person, who have picked Hao Kua? Is that how you say it? I did look up his Chinese name, which is incredibly hard to write, but it's... Being. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about who he is and why he's important to you. I hope I'm not being too long winded. I love reading about history. I have a weird fascination with the first and second opium wars period of Chinese history. I don't know why. I just love it. As context, around the time of the opium wars, there was a system of trading between China and Western countries. And that system was that all the trade was controlled in Guangzhou. At the time, it was called Canton. So they call this uh-huh. the, the Canton system of trading. So everything had to be yeah. traded through this port. Under this system, there was a group of people that controlled the system. Basically, they had a monopoly granted by the emperor to trade with foreign firms. 
And the head of this organization or, or the head of the monopoly was Hao Kua. So why I'm interested in him is firstly, he's from the same hometown as my ancestors. He's from Shenzhou and Fujian. And secondly, and I didn't know this myself, he was once the richest person in the world because he controlled all of the trade between China and Western powers. He controlled all of the porcelain that came out of China, all of the tea that came out of China and all of the silver that went into China. The interesting story about him is that when China lost, I think, the first opium war, there was an indemnity that China had to pay Western countries for losing the war. And it was three million tails of silver. And he personally, him himself, contributed one billion of that. So you can imagine the amount of money this guy had. And then secondly, why I'm fascinated with this person is because he's still very revered in America. So there are a lot of old trading houses and merchant houses in America. They still hang pictures of this guy in their mansions and in their halls because of the way he's helped Western countries and also China facilitate trade. So I look up to this guy because that's what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to achieve. I'm trying to facilitate Australian-China relations. I'm trying to facilitate better trading or better cultural understanding between the two countries. What an interesting story. Yeah. I mean, before we wrap up for today, we talked a lot about China and the change. Have you seen any changes in Australia and how we are looking at Asia and how the Asian-Australian community has changed in the last few years? I don't want to get too political. When I was starting off my career in the Howard administration, China was probably not at the stage to do all this trade. There was a lack of opportunity to leverage the trade and cultural exchanges between Asia and Australia. But I would say, personally, I think during the Morrison administration, the relations between the two countries went down and went sour a little bit. So that was a bit Mm. disappointing to see. Whereas before, with the Rudd administration and maybe now with the Albanese administration, I'm seeing things improve. So I think that's encouraging to see. And then also just speaking with my friends in Australia, they said there's more Asian representation now, not just in the media, but in the workforce, which is encouraging. Mm-hmm. Because I think for me, one of the things that was holding me back from eventually reintegrating myself back into Australian society is the fear of not being able to break the bamboo ceiling. So it's very mm. encouraging to see and making me feel a lot better <laughs> that my skills may be valued. In many ways, it's both positive and negative, but the rise of China per se and its power mm. in the region, one positive from a career perspective, from Australians' point of view, is it has made a lot of companies recognise and businesses recognise the need to be more Asia capable. From a market perspective, China has proven itself to be a very attractive market from a financial perspective. And it's not just China. If you look at the rest of Asia, there's a lot of opportunities. China probably just makes the most headlines in the news. But if overall that has given more companies and CEOs a bit more thought and rethinking about how they position their workforce and the types of people they want at the senior levels. I think that's a good thing. Yes, I think so too. It's been really wonderful to speak with you today. Hope to have you back in Australia at some point and look forward to continuing following your Asia journey with us. We'll do. Uh, Now that the pandemic's over, I'll be traveling home a lot more. 
So look forward to meeting <laughs> you in Australia. Cloud Asia is now on Substack. Subscribe at cloudasia.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please share it with someone who would also enjoy it. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Cloud Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.